today we start a brand new series. Have you ever watched or, or watched a movie or you read a book where the opening scene just grabs you and just like instantly you're just, you're fixed. Like I, I want to watch the rest of this movie or I want to read the rest of this book based on the opening scene. Maybe for you it was, uh, maybe it was Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. There's the iconic scene where Indiana Jones steals the idol and he's, he's in this temple and all of a sudden this massive boulder starts chasing him and he's just, as he's running through trying to get away from it while all these traps are going off. It's so, so, so intense and so awesome. Maybe it was the high-speed car chase in a James Bond movie. Maybe it's the opening of Star Wars where Darth Vader is, is chasing down the rebels in a spaceship or or, or maybe that's not your thing. Maybe for you, the iconic opening scene was Sound of Music, where Julie Andrews is just spinning around, singing at the top of a hill, singing your heart out. It's a great way to start a story, whether it's a movie or whether it's a novel. A great starting captures your attention and it helps you stay engaged. And then there's Matthew's Gospel, which does the opposite. And let me read through it, and as I read through it, try to stay engaged. Here we go. Verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the father of Ibijah. Ibijah was the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the father of Jehoram. Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh was the father of Ammon. Ammon was the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jehochin and his brothers born at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the Babylonian exile, Jehoiachin was the father of Shealtel. Shealtel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. Abiad was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the, the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Achim. Achim was the father of Eliad. Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. All those listed above include 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to, Babylon, to the Babylonian exile, and 14 from the Babylonian exile to the Messiah. Now that's an intro. Doesn't it make you want to read more? Now let's be honest. How many of you, while I was reading that, zoned out? Keeping with our theme of honesty, how many of you, when you come to that section, when you're reading through your Bible, you do one of two things. Either you, squim it, you skim it really quickly without really reading it, or you skip the entire section and say, okay, let's get to the good stuff. Now, if you're someone who loves genealogies, then maybe this is fascinating stuff for you. But if you're like the 99.9% .9 of the rest of the world, it feels like it's irrelevant, especially when it's somebody else's genealogy. 
And you don't even care that much about your genealogy, never mind somebody else's. Because you know what? You have enough relatives already. You don't need to discover any more. In fact, the only positive thing that comes out of COVID right now is that in this year, you have a valid reason not to invite your crazy uncle to your house for Christmas. And so this is a tough read. And it's a bit of a yawner when it comes to the way to start a book. And so as you read it, you think, okay, let's just get to the good stuff. Come on, Matthew, let's go. Because let's face it, these are not exactly the type of verses that you're writing down in your journal or keeping in your wallet or, or keeping as your life verse. And in fact, as you're reading them, you're like, these aren't even that helpful. For example, if I'm reading my Bible early in the day and I come across Hebrews 13.5, which says, don't love money, be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fill you, I will never abandon you. That's something that I can look at and say, okay, God, that's a great reminder. Today, I'm going to focus on what I have and not what I don't. And I'm going to be grateful and I'm going to be satisfied because, God, you've never failed me before and you're not going to fail me and you provide every need. I'm going to live this out, God, and I'm going to try and do it not just today, but I'm going to do this every day. That's, that's a good word. But nobody, and I mean nobody, starts their day by reading this. Okay, God, Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh was the father of Amon, Amon was the father of Josiah. That's, that, that verse is gold, God. I'm going to live this out today. We're, we just don't. We, we, that's nobody's life verse. But there's a good reason that Matthew leads with this list. Because in this genealogy, everything that you need to know about Christianity is here. See, if you're willing to dig a little, there's, there's so much you can learn from these seemingly 17 boring verses. Matthew uses 42 names in this genealogy, not only to document this family line, but to teach you some things about the true nature of God through them. So today, I'm going to look at five things that we can learn from these 17 verses that maybe you didn't realize before. Number one, this genealogy teaches us that the gospel is good news, not just good advice. See, when Matthew begins his gospel, he begins with this seemingly uninteresting, definitely unentertaining un way by beginning with a genealogy. The reason Matthew does this is because what he wants to show you is this. He wants to show you that this is not just a story. This is not just a, a, a fable. This is history. He's documenting history. The thing that sets Christianity apart from other religions is this that it is bound to history and not just a set of life principles. The center of Christianity is not a set of life principles that Jesus gave us, but an action that's something that Jesus would do for us. So when you dig into other religions, they're built around a, setting, a set of teachings and principles, which would be just as valid whether the founder of the religion lived or died. In other religions, we see that the, the figure who is central to that religion is just the messenger of these teachings. For example, the teachings of Buddhism do not sink or swim based on whether Buddha is actually a person or not. Those principles that Buddhists believe are eternal and timeless, Buddha was just merely the messenger of those principles. Same thing with Islam. Islam is a pattern of how Allah wants people to live, and Muhammad was the prophet and messenger for that teaching. Muslims will tell you that Muhammad was an actual person, but the teachings do not depend on whether he was or whether he wasn't. That's not too true for Christianity. 
Christianity is built on a set of events that actually took place in history because the core of Christianity is not what Jesus taught us to do. The core of Christianity is what Jesus did for us on a cross, which means that if the crucifixion and the resurrection did not happen, the whole faith falls apart because this event is so central. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, the writers, documented Jesus' life. And as they documented, they did this to bring you to their main point, his resurrection. See, Jesus lived about 33 years. And the Gospel writers skim the first 30 years of his life. And and the last three is what they focus on, but specifically the last week of his life. And they document many of his teachings, but the main point is the historical event that they document that changed history. See, the gospel is good news, not just good advice. See, gospel means good news. A gospel message was always good news. For example, in ancient Greece, if you were being invaded, your kingdom was being invaded by, by an army, the king would send out a messenger to all the areas. Maybe, maybe you looked at the army that was incoming, and it, was, it outsized your own army. And you needed more reinforcements. So a messenger would send out the king to all areas of the kingdom. He would send the messenger out to all the areas of the kingdom. And they would call out for help. They would ask everyone to come and join so we can fight this army. This, this message that was sent to the, king, the corners of the kingdom, this was not a gospel message. This was a cry for help. But suppose that your army, this army that you put together, destroyed the other army. The king would then send another messenger out to the entire kingdom with a different message. A message of victory. A message of celebration. A message that indicated to the people that because of this victory, that there would be peace across the land. This was a gospel message. This was good news. And so the messenger that brought this this good news, in Greek the word was agalos, or angel. So when we read through the Christmas story, who shows up to the shepherds? Egalos, or angels. And what do they announce? Do they announce God needs help? No, they announce that, that, that peace has come to the earth. They announce that the Savior is here. Not, not with a list of ten new commandments for you to follow, but that a child is here that is going to save humanity. See, what the world didn't need was a better teacher. Humanity failed to listen to all the other teachers before Jesus. In school, I always struggled with science. I had to work really hard just to get mediocre marks in science class during high school. So throwing me with that in mind, throwing me into a university level science class was not actually going to help me a bit because I struggled with the basic elements of science. C.S. Lewis who is a famous author and theologian, said this in this, his incredible book, Mere Christianity, from 1952. This is what he says. It is quite true that if we took Christ's advice, we should soon be living in a happier world. You need not even go as far as Christ. If we did all that Plato or Aristotle or Confucius told us, we would get on a great deal better than we do. And so what? We've never followed the advice of the great teachers. Why are we likely to begin now? Why are we more likely to follow Christ than any of the others? Because he is the best moral teacher, but that makes it even less likely that we shall follow him. If we cannot take the elementary lessons, it is likely we are going to, is it likely that we are going to take the most advanced ones? If Christianity only means one more bit of good advice, then Christianity is of no importance. There have been no lack of good advice for the last 4,000 years. A bit more makes no difference. 
See, we, we didn't need another good teacher. And that's not to downplay the teachings of Jesus, which are so incredible. Like, I, I would argue that Jesus is the best teacher that ever walked the earth. What we needed, though, was we needed a Savior. A Savior that would come to earth and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And salvation comes from accepting this, this gift and putting your trust in Jesus. Not solely because of what Jesus taught, but because of what he did. The core of being a follower of Jesus a follower of Jesus, is that you believe in him and you accept this gift of salvation. Simply following his life principles, while it will help you in life, it will not save you alone. See, you're not a Christian if you simply just follow Jesus' teachings and yet deny his lordship in your life. Even if you follow his teachings extremely well, even if you look like the best Christian because of the way you follow those teachings, it doesn't make you a Christian. See, the core of Christianity is not a set of teachings. The core of Christianity is a gift that is to be received. The gospel is good news, not just good advice. Number two, the genealogy shows us that Jesus is the center of history. See, when you think of, of powerful family lines in, in maybe recent history, we think of people like the Kennedys or the Bushes or the royal family in England or even our prime minister right now has this lineage now of Trudeau's of two prime ministers in the family. Just being part of a powerful or influential family puts you on the radar. For example, the Trudeau's, their, their kids and their grandkids and great-great-grandkids are going to be on the radar because of the lineage that they come from. But the family line that Matthew begins his gospel with is on no one's radar. Sure, if you went back hundreds or thousands of years, you could trace it back to King David or Solomon or Abraham. But at this point in history, no one was paying attention to this insignificant family line from the rural areas of Israel. They just, they were not a threat. But God made a promise a long time ago to Abraham that he was going to bring salvation to the world through the nation that his family line would establish. And at this point in history, there are some powerful nations. And from the outside, it definitely looks like these powerful nations are directing everything, that they're calling the shots. But through this genealogy that Matthew lays out at the beginning of his gospel, that despite what it looks like, God is the one that is pulling the strings. God's in complete control. Because no one was thinking about this family line as far as power goes. They are completely insignificant. But, but Matthew, in this, in, in this first part of his gospel, he's showing you that the power that any world government has is actually just an illusion. It's hard to watch. In the last years, Christians on social media and Christians publicly have been sounding the alarm that the, the, that the control that the government has during COVID is too much. Some have said that the virus is actually a hoax in order for world governments to increase their grip over people. And when I hear it, and it doesn't really even matter if this, is, if this is factual or not, it sounds a lot like fear. The reality is God is in control even when it doesn't seem like it. Anything else is an illusion. And so at the, this time in history that Jesus is ready to enter the world stage, no one is thinking about this insignificant line, family line from Israel. But here's an example of how the extent of how control God is. 
If you know anything about the Christmas story, you know that Caesar Augustus made a decree that all the world would be taxed and you needed to return home to your hometown in order to do so, to be counted and to pay your taxes. So Mary and Joseph have to return to Bethlehem for the, for the census and pay their taxes. That's basic Christmas story right there. But Luke tells us that God's purpose for having them return to Bethlehem was because God made a promise to the prophet Micah hundreds of years earlier that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So God moves Rome to tax everyone so that he could get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem right at the time that Mary was going to give birth. But the question is this, and maybe you've thought this before. Why did God go to all that work just to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill a prophecy? Because really, he could have just sent an angel or he could have just uh, sent, uh, spoke to Joseph in a dream because up to this point, we know Joseph has this history of obeying God's command even when it comes in a dream. So why did God tax the whole Roman world? It was to show you something. It was to show you that God has control over what we believe are world powers. He taxed the entire Roman world just to move two people 90 miles. He uses governments like chess pieces to accomplish his will. So is it possible that the things that we fret about right now when it comes to our governments is actually all part of God's plan? I mean, it's just a thought. There's precedence for this type of thing. Maybe that's why and when Paul writes in Titus 3, and he says this, Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone and must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. See, we know that the, the that government sits under the authority of God, if, you, if God is truly in control. So unless the government is asking you to deny your faith, God's word says that we are to submit. Why? Because God's not worried. The greatest world power is no match for an all-powerful, all-knowing God. See, there's a moment in the, in the New Testament where Peter and the disciples are arrested for preaching God's word. And in Acts 5, Peter says this. He says, we must obey God rather than any human authority. And that's the basis that some Christians are using to say that when an ordinance from the government comes down that disrupts the, way, the regular way of doing church, this is the quote that they use to say that that's not actually proper. But it's important to note what Peter's saying here is he's replying to a command that they are banned from teaching in Jesus' name. That's different than what we face today. And so God says through Paul, remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. Because, why? Because he's in control. Even when it doesn't appear to be so. That should actually encourage you. Because if you watch enough of the news, it does look like that Jesus is not the center of history. Because no one's reporting about what God's up to. Everything's about COVID. Everything's about violence. Everything's about war. Everything's about what the world leaders are up to. But if you believe that God is in control, then we should worry less and have confidence that God is up to something in this time, perhaps using the powers that be to accomplish his will. The Jews in the first century thought that perhaps God was powerless in their situation. God had been silent for 400 years, and Rome was a superpower. And in their lifetime, all they witnessed was a corrupt Roman government calling all the shots. Was God powerless to all of it? But behind the scenes from this insignificant Jewish family line, hope was on the way. See, I love it when Jen and I 
find a new show on Netflix that we enjoy. And, like maybe we didn't know about it or we heard about it, we never watched it. And we start watching it and then we find out, oh wow, this is a good show. And there's 10 seasons of it. That's awesome. That means I don't have to wait until next week to see the next episode. We, we can watch it at our leisure. We can binge it for a while if we want to. But here's the only downside. Every once in a while, the main character of the show gets into this predicament. You've seen this before. And you don't know in that moment, are they going to survive? Are they going to make it through this situation? Oh, you're on the edge of your seat, and you don't know what they're going to do. And then I think, oh, wait, there's nine more seasons of this. They have to survive, or there's no show. It kind of takes the edge off of the suspense. Well, in the same way, if you have your Bible, you know the ending. You know that when all is said and done, that God's going to be standing there at the finish line. So why am I afraid of what's happening around me now when I know who the writer is, I know who the director is, and I know how the script ends? Number three, God is working in all things to bring about his purposes, good and bad. See, Matthew records 42 generations, and it's not clean. If you dig through the list and you hear the stories, it's actually quite messy. It's actually quite dysfunctional. Look at verse 3. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. First, Matthew includes Tamar's name. You never include a woman's name in ancient Jewish genealogy. Why, why would you include a woman's name? Because what Matthew's trying to point out is that this is, this is more than just a historical lineage. I want you to take a look at the stories behind this family line. Let me summarize this for a second. This story about Tamar is, is, is kind of PG, but I'll summarize, summarize that with in mind. Read the story, trust me. Tamar ends up being widowed and hooks up with her father-in-law after her husband dies while he's intoxicated. And the bottom line is there's some skeletons in the closet in this part of the family tree. And Perez and Zerah name our sons while they technically can call Judah grandpa, they could also call him dad. It's messy. It's not the type of honorable story that you would want for your family line. But God brings about a Messiah, not from this clean, perfect, holy lineage, but out of dysfunction. See, God's displaying that he can bring greatness to your future despite your messy family. And it's messy past. And maybe it scares you to go to Ancestry.com and find out what your family history is because the bit you know about is not exactly something to be proud of. See, you need to understand that God is working through you despite your recent history, despite your history of your family line, good or bad, to accomplish his will through you. Just grab onto that truth right there. That's so good. Here's something I think I should point out. Skeptics of the Bible will often point something out. That the genealogy that Matthew documents is not consistent with the genealogy that Luke documents. Biblical scholars point this out, that the genealogy that we read, in, that we read, we read at the start in Matthew's gospel, that's Joseph's family line. The one that Luke gives in Luke chapter 3 is actually Mary's family line. And as you, if you go through them, they're actually the same until you get to, to King David, and then they differ. Why is that? Well, there's a reason why that's really important, and it's not just to prove that this is not a contradiction. See, God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that one of his bloodline will always be king of Israel. So you have God's promise 
But legally, as a father, you would also pass the legal right to the throne onto one of your sons. So in the first transition, David hands the promise and the legal, legal right of the kingship to Solomon. It's, 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 it's both, hand in hand. And from generation to generation, this continues to happen. But then we get to a man named Jeconiah, who lives this incredibly sinful life. So sinful that God tells them, Jeconiah, I'm not even going to allow you to have someone from your bloodline ever be king. So now we have this problem. Because the legal right from Jeconiah can still be passed on. It can still be passed on. But God has cut off the bloodline after Jeconiah with this curse. And it turns out that one of the people in that bloodline is Joseph. And so, rightfully, Joseph would have had legal right to the throne because of, his, because of this, this, this passing on from father to, fa- father to son. But God has ensured that because of Jeconiah's curse, he will never sit on the throne. There will be no, he can't, there will, no one from that bloodline will ever be able to. So if you go back to David, one of his other sons is a man named Nathan. And through Nathan's bloodline, we eventually, as you continue to go down, you come to Mary. So Mary giving birth to Jesus as a virgin, Jesus is of David's bloodline through Mary. And by Joseph legally adopting Jesus, he now has the right to the throne through Joseph. So now you have the king of kings by blood and by legal rights. I'm telling you, only God can make this all work. God's working through all things to make his will possible, even when it looks like there's no hope. Number four, the good news is for those that are looking on in from the outside. See, for a Jewish person, their lineage was sort of like their resume. And like some people's resume, people sometimes would add things and sometimes they would conveniently leave some things out. Like, like imagine you're applying for a job, and let's be honest, you want the job, so maybe you don't include that one job where you were only there for like two or three weeks and then you got fired. And, and when they ask you to list your references, like, let's face it, we always include the references, these people will say nice things about me. I'm not going to include everybody because there's certain people that I don't want a prospective employer speaking to. In the same way, many times people in, in that era would exaggerate their bloodline. They, they would be sure to highlight those in the family that brought incredible nobility and honor, and they would leave out those that brought shame. And one of the reasons was that, that one of the reasons, one of the reasons that this, in this list that we like to skip over it is because it, it, it hides, it's really, really important. It hides nothing. This list hides nothing. See, you've got Tamar, who's a prostitute and has children with her father-in-law. You have Rahab, who's also a prostitute and a Gentile, which is a non-Jew. You have Ruth, who is a Moabite. Not impressive as far as a Jewish bloodline goes. Do you also notice how many women are represented? You would never add women because they were thought to have added no value to your, your line. But not in Jesus' genealogy. He doesn't, even include, he doesn't even include them because of how highly honorable they were. And in fact, every single woman that, he, that Matthew lists in this lineage in, is involved in some sort of sexual scandal. And even those that were in the line that he could brag about, 
like David or you know, King David, famous King David, he includes Bathsheba's name. A reminder that David had an affair with his friend Uriah's wife and then got her pregnant. And then he couldn't cover it up, so he had Uriah killed. That's in Jesus' family history. Jesus' bloodline is filled with people that come from outside of what was considered honorable. His family line is outside of the moral standards. His family line comes from outside the ethnical standards. It was full of Gentiles. His family tree comes out from outside the gender standards. It was not the model family tree that people would try to present. But what it tells us is this, is that Jesus came for the outcasts. He's not ashamed of them. He was not ashamed to identify with them as part of his family. And whether it's a giant of the faith like Abraham or royalty like King David or a prostitute like Rahab, in God's family, everyone is on equal ground. He wants you to know that it doesn't matter who you are. There is no shame in his family tree. There are no name. There, there, if these are the names that brought us to Christ, he wants you to know that we will all be included in the family line that comes from Christ. Because maybe you felt like an outcast. Maybe, maybe you, don't, you don't come from this long line of uh, faith in, in your family. Maybe there are some messy things that you would rather not talk about in your family tree. Maybe some messy things in your own personal past. This family line shows that it doesn't matter. That God works through our messiness. That everyone who puts their faith in Jesus gets a seat at the table. It's good news. Number five, Jesus is the ultimate rest. This is so good. It's really interesting. The number seven in the Bible is this significant number of perfection or completion. You see it throughout the whole Bible. Let me give you a few examples. We just finished a series called Seven Signs, where John lays out seven signs that pointed to the identity of who Jesus was. When God flooded the earth and then sent, sent the rainbow after Noah's Ark, that whole story, when he sent the rainbow, it consisted of seven colors. In the book of Revelation, there's, there's letters sent to the seven churches of Revelation. When the Israelites took down Jer the walls of Jericho, they circled the city for six days. Then on the seventh day, they marched around seven times while seven priests with seven horns blew their horns. When Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister? Seven? Jesus responded, 70 times seven. In other words, not 490 times, as much as required for completion. And so there are so many significant instances of this number seven. It's so interesting that when Matthew lays out Jesus' family tree, he lays them out in three sets of 14, which is six sets of seven. Which means that when Jesus is born, he ushers in the seventh seven. The seventh set of seven. We established that seven means completion or perfection. It also represents rest. See, when God made the, made the world, he did it in six days and rested on the seventh as it was not complete. Every seven years, the land in Israel was supposed to rest so that it could replenish its crops. It would be seven years of planting, and then seven years where it would replenish its crops. So every 49 years, the seventh seven was the year of Jubilee. Every 49 years, they would take this one year where all debts in Israel were forgiven. 
And every slave was given their freedom. So when Jesus shows up as the seventh seven, what Matthew's showing you is, is that Jesus is actually the year of Jubilee. He has come to erase your debts, your sin debts. He's come to set you free. He is the ultimate rest. It's so good. Matthew would later record in, in, in chapter eleven twenty eight. 28, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens. And I will give you rest. I am your year of jubilee. I am your rest. I have come to set you free. Isn't that so awesome? See, this baby that we celebrate this season, he was significant. He was worth waiting for. He is the good news. He is the center of history. It doesn't matter about anyone else's story. All that matters is his story. He came to work through you. He came to redeem you no matter what your past is and no matter what your bloodline looks like. He came for the outcasts, which is something we only, the name that we only put on each other and what we determine. Because in Jesus' kingdom, he clearly states in this genealogy that king and prostitute all sit at the same table. He came to give you rest. He is the year of Jubilee. Your sin debt has been fully forgiven. You are no longer a slave. You are free. And that's our God. That's the baby that was born in Bethlehem. Let's pray. Lord, when we look through this genealogy, it's not maybe what we would expect. It's not this long, holy line of incredibly uh, people of huge faith and, and, and huge honor. There's some messiness there. There's some things that many people would never speak about or cover up out of shame, but not you. Because you recognize that we all have pasts, we all have history, and that you didn't come to this earth for the perfect you came for our past. You came for our messiness. You came to save us out of our sin. You came to be the year of Jubilee. You came to be the seventh seven. You came to forgive us of our sin. You came to free us from our slavery of sin. And so now, Lord, as we celebrate you this season, May we, may we see you as that, that 49th year, that year of jubilee, and let us be free. Amen.